We're continuing our study, Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 25, if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles there. Um, And this morning, we're looking at a story that if you've grown up um, in the church, you are probably familiar with the the content of this morning's um, scripture. So I've got a request with, for those of you who, who have heard it before is um, to take a fresh look at it and to act as if you are hearing it for the first time and to see it with fresh eyes and from a fresh perspective. Um, I think it would be helpful for us because what you don't want to do in that sort of situation is to kind of tune out and go, well, I, I know the, about the Good Samaritan and therefore I can just think about you know, what i got going on the rest of the week. And don't need to, to listen to this. Because there's a lot in here that's powerful for us. And we, we need to take Jesus' words seriously. And the reality is that so many times it's not that we don't know what Jesus said. It's not that we don't know the information. But that we fail to apply it you know, to our lives in practical, you know, practical ways. Uh, so this morning... We want to want to be focused on that, and we also recognize that for some of you, you know, this may be uh, maybe new, uh, maybe something that you're you're not familiar with, and so I'm going to approach it um, in that way. So let's just go ahead and read um, verses 25 through 37, and then we'll pray and get into the message. So he says, "And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying." Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set on him his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you back when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we've already sung to you and confessed our complete dependence on you, that we need you every moment of every day, uh, that without you we are nothing. Um, Lord, help us to remember that and to have those thoughts drive us to the face of Jesus and um, to the feet of Jesus, we pray. That Jesus, you are our all in all and you are our sufficiency, you are our hope. Teach us from your word this morning. Help us to learn from you. Move among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for your great love poured out on the cross. We praise your name this morning, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of this. And so we have the scene where, you know, a lawyer is... um, Testing Jesus, it says in verse 25. It says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, one thing I want us to get from the very beginning of this, that in answering this question, this question is, is, is given to Jesus uh, several different times in the Gospels. 
And Jesus tends to answer it according to the need of the individual who is asking the question. And so, as he, we need to remember that as he addresses the specific lawyer that he's talking to. Just as when he speaks to the rich young ruler that we'll come to later in the book of Luke, um, he doesn't say the exact same thing to him because he's a, at a different, a different person and at a different point in his understanding and in his life. You think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, being of those three that we're looking at here, the one most open and most receptive to Jesus, and what Jesus, how Jesus instructs him. And that also is very different. And so Jesus meets people where they are and challenges their understanding and their thinking according to where that person is in their specific journey. That's important for us to remember. And so this person is a lawyer, a, lawyer, a person you know, who understands the religious law. He's a Jewish person. That's also important you know, for the context of, of what we're talking about here. And he comes to Jesus for the purpose of putting him to the test. Now, some um, read that very strongly, that he's looking to trip Jesus up. Others look at it as a little bit less strongly, that he's you know, just wanting to engage Jesus in a conversation um, like many you know, people would do in this time. But I think as we see, we'll see as we go that his motives are not fully pure in his questioning of Jesus. And, he's, and Jesus, as he so often does, he answers a question with a question. Because he wants that person to think about what they're asking and what they're saying and get to the heart of their question. So when the man says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't just say, well, believe in me. Or anything else. He says, what is written in the law, how do you read it? Now remember, he's talking to a lawyer. What is written in the law? What is written in what you study all the time? What is written in it? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So here he answers with the law. He answers with Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is something that the Jewish people would repeat all the time. The, you know, they called it the Shema because that word means hearing. It's like you need to hear you know, from the Lord of who he is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verses 18. He quotes the second half of it. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so he has these answers, and it's, and it's possible that he even had um, that Deuteronomy 6.5 written in a little box, you know, that would have been on a necklace, you know, tied around him that he carried with him everywhere that he went. It was common in that day. And so he had, you know, this automatic response that no matter how he, he wanted to, you know, test Jesus or propose things to Jesus, that he couldn't deny the most fundamental, basic things of what Moses had given them. To love God and to love his neighbor. And so Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, here's where we need to understand again and remember who he's talking to and why he's talking to the person in this, this way. Because in this mindset of Judaism at this time, it is a works-based salvation. That if you, if you are good enough, if you do the right things, then you're going to have eternal life. And if you don't, well, you're going to die and go to hell. You're going to be apart from God. But it's based on what you, what you do. And that's why they were so big about keeping the letter of the law, especially, you know, the Ten Commandments. You know, things of, you know, not having any other gods, not using God's name in, in vain, not committing murder, not committing adultery. And they were able to, you know, to keep many of these things to the, the letter of it. But in, remember in the Sermon on the Mount and in many other places, Jesus exposes that because 
He's like, yes, you haven't physically murdered someone, but what about the hatred you have in your heart to your brother? And so Jesus is always trying to expose this incorrect understanding of the law that it could save them by their good works, by by doing good. And so Jesus puts it to him, you know, when he says, do this and you will will live, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because it's something that no person can really do fully. It's an impossible standard because only God is perfect. Only God is holy in terms of, you know, being completely without sin for all time. And so then it becomes this issue of, okay, if I have to meet this standard, well, how do I meet this standard? Well, I have to justify myself, and which is exactly what Luke 10, 29 tells us. But he desiring to justify himself. See, we need to understand that at this point, the proper response for the lawyer is to say, well, I'm guilty. I don't fully keep this. I can't fully keep this. What do I do now, Jesus? Like, that's the proper response to Jesus. But instead, it says that he wants to justify himself. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And this whole part about who is my neighbor is really important because a person can say, oh, yes, I love God with all, you know, my heart, mind, strength. A person can say that, and it's hard to challenge that. But when a person says they love their neighbor, well, that's stuff that you can actually have evidence for, right, in everyday life. Well, do you love your neighbor or not love your neighbor? And so it's at this point that people want to justify themselves because this is the point that's easiest to say, no, that's, that's not fully true, dude. You don't always love your neighbor. And in their understanding, as he asked that question, who is my neighbor? Because in the understanding from the, from the Jewish mindset at this time is that their neighbor is fellow, you know, or fellow Jews would be his neighbor. And particularly fellow Jews that are also living rightly are his neighbor. A, Jew, a Jewish woman who was a prostitute, would not be, he would not consider his neighbor as having any sort of anything to do with her, any contact or any responsibility. So it was a very narrowed, under, they had a very narrowed understanding, those of the religious law had a very narrow understanding of that love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a contrary understanding to what the Old Testament actually taught and was given as an example, but this was at the time their view of it. And so Jesus replies with this parable, with this story, he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this is a very believable uh, scenario. It's something that actually did happen to people. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho descends approximately 3,000 feet in about 17 miles. It's full of these windy, you know, narrow places where robbers can lie and wait for someone. They won't see them coming around the corner and boom, take them out and take their stuff and leave them for dead. And uh, that's what, what happens here. It reminds me of this place in, in Mexico when the uh, missionaries were first going to this one village in the, the mountains. It was just, you know, one narrow road that you would drive through to get, you know, to this particular village. And so what the people would do in that area is that they would see, um, you know, a vehicle that wasn't a normal vehicle come through, and then they would go and put some big rocks in the road and just wait and say, well, if they come back, you know, there's no place to turn around, no real good way to get out, so it's like, hey, give us everything you have if you want to live. And then we'll move your rocks and let you go on your way, but if you try to try anything, try not to pay us, well, there will be some consequences for that. Um, and so for a long time, missionaries would, would go in, and then they'd have to leave, you know, keep going straight on the same road and go like an extra two hours to get back home in order not to get robbed. But then eventually, through their good testimony continuously, um, then the robbers were like, you don't have to do that. We're not going to rob you. 
We know you're good people, trying to help people. And then eventually some of those robbers and thieves and murderers actually came to believe in Jesus. So we see the power of the gospel, you know, to change lives. But it's a, something that happens in the world and, and, and people are traveling, particularly in these sorts of scenarios. And so it says a priest was going down the road and he, he came by, he passed by on the other side. And a, a Levite did the same. And you might be asking, well, what's the difference between a priest and a, a Levite? Well, they're both from the tribe of, of Levi, but the priests had to be descendants of Aaron. Moses and Aaron from the Old Testament. Aaron had the priestly duty, so they had to be direct descendants of Aaron, and the other Levites would assist in the temple needs. Um, they had different levels of responsibility. But the case here is that neither of them viewed that man beaten on the side of the road as their neighbor, maybe that's the question, who, you know, is he my neighbor? Well, he's, kind of, he's so beat up, I can't tell if he's Jew or Gentile. And, you know, maybe he had it coming. Maybe it's God's judgment on him. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things that could go through their minds to rationalize. You know, I, I've got to go, you know, pretty soon I've got to do my priestly, you know, duties. And then, you know, if I, if I get involved with this guy, I'm going to be delayed. Or if I get involved with this guy, I'm going to be, you know, ceremonially unclean, and then I'm going to have to go through this ritual process, and somebody else is going to have to take my responsibilities, and that's not really fair. You know, all sorts of ways they can rationalize not identifying this half-dead person on the side of the road as their neighbor. But, it, but when you think about it, if anyone was obligated in this time to help this person on the side of the road, it would be those who are teaching people to love God and to love their neighbor. But they fall short on that application. They're, you know, it's likely, again, they're wearing the law on their physical person and trying to keep the letter of it, but the spirit of it, they're denying in their actions. Edersham writes, It was the principle of questioning who is my neighbor which led both priest and Levite to such heartless conduct. Who knew what this wounded man was and how he came to lie there? And were they called upon in ignorance of this to take all the trouble, perhaps to incur the risk of life, which care of him would involve? Thus Judaism, in the persons of its chief representatives, had by exclusion attention to the letter come to destroy the spirit of the law. Happily there came yet another way, not only a stranger, but one despised, a semi-heathen Samaritan. He asked not who the man was, but what was his need. And so here's what we're getting into with this Samaritan that comes about. Uh, we need to understand that the, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. A Samaritan was a person who was you know, partly Jewish and partly Gentile. Uh, they, the, that people came about um, because of Assyrian occupation and dispersion and relocation and um, all sorts of convoluted stuff. But um, you ended up with this people group who were very isolated um, and un- they, they, had a, they were in a kind of a permanent state of unacceptance because the Jewish people would not accept them because they weren't fully Jewish. They had some Gentile in them. The Gentile people wouldn't accept them because they're partly Jewish. And so they're stuck in the middle with no real you know, friends or allies. And they kind of made their own way and had their own you know, understanding of God. They had their own version of the you know, law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. They had their own mountain that they worshipped on. You know, so they kind of took the things, many of the things from you know, the Old Testament and you know, try to apply it to them and to their situation. But in so doing, as we read from you know, Jesus, when he talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, they had this incomplete understanding of who God was. And they needed, and they certainly didn't understand all the things having to do with the Messiah, and you know, with, with Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. So they, they needed instruction. And that, if you go back, if you want to have some, some fun later on today, read John chapter 4 of Jesus dealing with that Samaritan 
woman and then him going and, and being with the Samaritan people. And many of them believing in him. And that there in itself is a lesson that Jesus is, is giving and that Jesus goes to the other and makes himself known. But the Jewish people viewed the Samaritans in a very terrible way. In John eight forty eight, some of the Jewish leaders called Jesus a Samaritan as an insult. They say, then the Jews answered him and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You catch that? Then we say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon. I mean, those are I mean, those are both given as like this this big insult to Jesus, big time insult. And yet Jesus is going to make this Samaritan the hero of the story. And that kind of gives a question, like who would be the hero of the story in our context today if Jesus was retelling this to us? You know, it depends where you lived in the world, right? And who the people groups were around there. And he would, whenever he would be talking to the majority group, whoever they despised, he would make the hero of the story. And so maybe the hero of the story in our context would be an Arab person. Maybe it would be somebody else. Maybe in your context, the hero of the story would be a townie. Or the hero of the story would be a frat boy. Or the hero of the story would be Latin. Or black. Or whatever. Whoever it is, the hero of the story might be a white dude. You know, whoever is normally the bad guy in your mind, Jesus is going to make the good guy in the story because he wants to redefine how we view neighbor. So whoever it is for you that you have issue with, that's who Jesus makes the hero. He's going to intentionally offend you and your way of thinking, and he's going to expose your sin. That's what Jesus always does. Jesus is going to intentionally expose your heart. And if there's any ugly in in it, he's going to bring it out to the surface and say, look, here's the ugly inside you. Here's what still has to get dealt with. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't do it out of spite. He doesn't do it to one-up you. He doesn't do it to show you that he's just better than you are. He does it for your good. Because what does God say? He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In order to know him, in order to understanding, a person has to first say, I'm a sinful person. I'm not right. I haven't treated everybody right. I've got ugly stuff inside of me that has to be dealt with. That's the, that's the beginning of coming to to know and follow Jesus. Jesus said he didn't come for the righteous. Those who have no need of a physician. Basically, Jesus says to those who say, I'm good. Jesus says, I've got nothing to say to you. I've got nothing that can help you. That's Jesus' response, ultimately, to those who Stand firm in their own self-righteousness. I've got nothing for you. Because you have to acknowledge at some point, at that beginning point, really, to really follow Jesus, you have to acknowledge the ugly within, the sinfulness within. So here's yet another opportunity for this man to repent. Jesus, you know, it, it's just, it's powerful. I, I want to just have a couple just things very quickly here about this Samaritan who goes to him and gets, you know, really involved. He says he's moved with compassion, so he starts from a place of compassion. His heart is right. He's not just doing this out of obligation or duty, even though in the circumstances, I'm sure the guy will take obligation and duty, Right? <laughs> 
But thankfully, the Samaritan has moved with compassion. He says, he went to him and bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. So he used probably like olive oil to soothe. You know, the wine, you know, has alcohol in it. So it's going to, you know, kill infection and bacteria. You know, it's got some natural properties there. It says, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. So he stays with this dude, you know, you know, he's going to be like, I'm going to put him up here. He's going to walk. You know, he puts himself in the lowly position. And then he takes this guy to an end, and he continues to take care of this guy there. And then the next day, it says he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Now, one denarii is basically a day's wage for a laborer or a soldier. So two days' wages. Um, in studying this, it said, you know, that that amount of money probably could have kept the guy there for about a month. Okay, paid his, his hotel and food and everything for a month. This guy, it's going to probably take some time for him to recover from his beating that he received. So he can stay there for a while and get healed up before he can travel again. And if it's going to take longer, he tells the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You know, there, there doesn't seem any kickback from the innkeeper here on that. You know, the Samaritan again is presented as trustworthy. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? So what does the lawyer say? He can't bring himself even to say the words. It's the Samaritan. In your own mind, whoever you have a harder time understanding and loving. Say the words out loud in your own mind. Because he just says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Again, it's another opportunity for this guy to be like, Jesus, I, need, I can't do that on my own. I need your help. I need you to change me. You know, but the conversation, you know, the conversation is left there, and we don't know what goes, you know, down, you know, after that. But based on the responses that we have, you know, we don't have any recording, and I think we probably would if the lawyer had, you know, at some point responded with, Jesus, I need your help. I think that would be there. Sadly, I think we're just left with this guy, you know, not moved in his position, not moved truly in his and changing in his understanding of his need for Jesus. And that's a sad state, that's a sad tale. It's a sad thing. But understand that Jesus loved him enough to give him opportunity and to tell him the truth that he needed to hear. Don't doubt Jesus' love for this. We know Jesus loved his enemies. He know he loved those who tried to test him, even when he had to give them harsh words of judgment. And yet, you know, even harsh words of judgment were an opportunity for people to say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. But it's the pridefulness of the human heart where we don't want to be wrong. And this is what I would challenge us in, this, in, in terms of an application for us today, that even as followers of Jesus, even as those who have come to Jesus in the first place with that understanding, with that confession, Jesus, I'm wrong, I'm sinful, I don't, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm one of the all. You know, those of us who have gotten down on our knees before God and said, you know, Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner. You know, those of us who have had that, yet as we continue on in our, our walk, and if we've walked with Jesus for a while, we, you know, the, we're, the, this is, it's, it's pretty twisted when you think about it. We can go back to being prideful. About our, we can be prideful about our walk with God and you know, things that we've done and things that we've learned and what we know. And then be back in the position, again, of justifying ourselves whenever we're confronted with not following Jesus fully. 
are in some area of life or some point missing the mark, you know, in our lives. And, and you know, we always, we, we always want to justify, seems that way anyway, we always want to justify our mistakes. We always want to justify our sin. And, you know, how many of us, when we get a, hey, that's wrong, initially go, that's wrong. If you're like me, you want to say, well, you need to understand X, Y, and Z. And to make, to be like this guy. We don't want to identify with this guy, but sometimes we have to identify with this guy because still want to make excuses and say, but, you know, but. And that's problematic. And so that's my takeaway to learn from this guy is that when it's from another person or from the Holy Spirit, the conviction of you were wrong, say, yeah, I was wrong. I mean, don't just say you're wrong because, well, that's the noble thing to do. Or, you know, you actually have to believe that. It needs to be true. You know, we need to search for objectivity. I was reading a book this week, and God talks about objectivity. And so many times we're not concerned about objectivity. We're not con- and what I mean by that is what's the higher calling that we're all called to? What's the truth? We're just concerned about saving face. So we're more concerned about how we appear than we are about being more like Jesus. I mean, this guy really, I mean, he was, he was just nailing it. He was just nailing it. I was like, ooh, man, that's, that's, that's rough, but that's good. I need to hear that. I need to hear that. Because we, we, we need this in our lives. We need to be confronted by the words of Jesus when we're not loving our neighbor. And so now we ask that question for you and me today. Who is your neighbor? How do you define that? Who is your neighbor? An ethics professor in college that defined neighbor as your neighbor is anyone you have the power to help. It's a pretty good definition. Your neighbor is anyone you have the power to help. That's, that's, that's good, and, that, and that's powerful. And, you know, and, and I don't, what I don't want to do is to, I don't want to short the power and, and the strength of that message. It's interesting in the world that we live in today, um, because, you know, in this time, your neighbors were anybody, you had to have a physical interaction with someone in order for that person to be your neighbor. You know, a person 300 miles away, unless news came, you know, which took longer and those things. And, you know, I don't want to diminish that because in reality there, there was communication. And so people did have responsibility beyond, you know, just their, their local context. We see even in the New Testament time and again, hey, you know, th- these people over in this place are having a problem. Get some money together and send it over to help them, right? Like we see that in biblical times. So we don't need to, to overly narrow that to it's just like only the people in your town that, that these people would be responsible for. It goes beyond that. But I would say today that that is heightened to an unprecedented levels because of the power of communication that we have today. We can know about problems all over the world all the time, and we do. And we know about problems in North Korea and in Sudan and in Honduras and, and, and it can get overwhelming sometimes, right? It can get overwhelming. And so sometimes we do have to ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to help to love my neighbor? Because right now I've got 7 billion neighbors, but I only have this much money. I only have this much resource, but I've got 7 billion neighbors. Like, what am I supposed to do? And so we do have to pray and have discernment. Which neighbors have you been called to reach specifically and to share with specifically? But what we have to be very, very careful of is that we don't use the enormity of it and go, Lord, I have 7 billion neighbors, therefore I help none. I'm overwhelmed by the number of neighbors I have, 
therefore I don't do anything. That's exactly the wrong, the opposite response of what we should have. There should be a, I mean, really, we need to spend some time, need to spend some time weeping on the ground for, before God that so many of our seven billion neighbors are in such great need. And then asking the discernment of God, which neighbors have you called me to help? And help me to, to hear from you on that and to do so faithfully and consistently and to be sacrificial like this good Samaritan was. This guy was sacrificial in his help and in his giving. So we shouldn't just be, Lord, I've got seven billion neighbors and I'm going to give a couple of them some of my excess. You know, that, that's, we need to rethink how we think about our neighbors and loving our neighbors and what it means to follow the examples that Jesus gave us. Because Jesus gave us, for those who follow him, this example of the Good Samaritan as a good model to follow. Following him, that model doesn't save us, but it is an indication that one's life has been changed by, the, by having met Jesus and by the power of Jesus at work in us and through us. If we don't practically love and help our neighbors, how can we say the love of God has invaded our hearts? I would posit that there's probably no invasion that's ever taken place. If there isn't some following the way of Jesus, which his way is a a way of sacrifice... Because Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. He sees us in our helpless state, and he sacrificed all of himself at the cross on our behalf. He gave it all up. Because he saw us wounded, helpless, spiritually without anything. We have no resource. We're like the beat-up dude on the side of the road. Then when it's like, how are you going to pay your way before God? And our answer is, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. And Jesus comes and pays it all for us. And he's so much better than this Samaritan because he doesn't just give us temporary housing and say, well, I'll pay for the rest of the temporary housing later if he needs more than that. Jesus gives us permanent housing with him eternally. And he doesn't just heal our wounds on a temporary basis. He takes away all of our sin, and one day he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Our sin nature even will be done away with, and all will be made right in the world. Like That's a promise of God, and so we have great expectant hope of the return of the king. But we understand that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, that he's done everything for us. He's paid our debt. He's paid our way. And he's given us reconciliation with God, and not just reconciliation with God. Now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians. And so now we go to people begging them to be reconciled to God. And that reconciliation between God and between people and people in the name and power of Jesus Christ knows no racial or socioeconomic bounds. It is not bound by borders that people make and definitions that people make because the truth of the message goes all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis where there's one human race. And there's families of that human race, but God made that promise to Abraham that in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so now we have no boundaries, no um, nothing separating us from God if we are in Jesus. And we have reason that nothing should separate us from any other person that's just a human barrier. Maybe a spiritual barrier that separates. But 
I want you to understand that so many times we're still bound up in our world where we have these definitions of, you know, this Jew, like they did here with these Jewish people and these Samaritan people, and, you know, they can't get along or they can't be friends. So I want you to think about in, in your context where you live. I mean, if you're a college student, you should, if you're a follower of Jesus, you really should be able to interact with, you know, a frat boy or a townie or whoever else, like, and love them equally in the name of Jesus and, and not just be there someone judging them, but someone offering hope in life. You should be able to talk to a person of any race. of any socioeconomic status. You should equally be able to talk to the rich and the poor. Because you understand you're no longer bound by those constraints. Because you've been freed from those things as you've been reconciled to God. You've been freed from those barriers and confinements that you know, sinful humans make against one another. And those, so those things don't have to define how we interact with people in our world anymore. Jesus is bigger than all that. And isn't that a beautiful message in all of this for us? And we see that played out in the rest of the New Testament as you continue to read it. And we know it's ultimately played out around the throne of God as there's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And there'll be people there who are rich and people there who are poor and people who are average and everything else. And that's going to be your family of God. So to now view people not based on any of those other things, are we the same nationality, are we the same ethnicity, are we the same language, are we the same economic class or any of those things, we can learn not to think that anymore. We go, are we the same family or is that person not yet part of my family because they haven't yet believed in Jesus? And then that's how we define. It's basically two things, family or not family yet. Follower of Jesus or not follower of Jesus yet. And I keep that yet, and yeah, we understand that not everybody's going to believe in Jesus. There's people dying every day, still in rebellion, and have their face set against him. But I say not yet because I want to have an expectation of hope when I deal with people that I'm not assuming that they're going to die apart from God. I'm assuming that before they die, they're going to believe in Jesus. And so I want to treat them as such. They're not my family yet. They're not believers in Jesus yet. But I want to keep a hopeful expectation that keeps the gospel going forward. And that's tough to do sometimes when people just tell you they hate God or don't want anything to do with God. But you need to keep that hopeful expectation and to keep praying and to keep being authentically one of Jesus' people before them. Let's read the last four verses. I'm going to make this really short and simple. As they went their way, Jesus entered a village. We know from the book of Matthew that's Bethany. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So here we have it. Jesus goes into Bethany. He goes into Martha's house. We know that that's Lazarus, Martha, Mary, all the same family. doesn't seem like Lazarus is here or gotten arrived yet. They're at Martha's house. Jesus starts teaching. Mary gets down at his feet, and she just wants to hear Jesus. And Martha, you know, she knows that's going on, but she's concerned, like, we're going to have dinner, and I've got to get, you know, vegetables chopped, and I've got to get stuff cooking. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And so she gets frustrated, and you can imagine her frustration just being like, I'm here doing all the work. My sister's just sitting on her tail. Like, Jesus, don't you see that this is injustice and, like, you should do something about this? And Jesus gives her the opposite response of what she thinks. Because she wouldn't go to Jesus thinking she's going to get rebuked. She goes to Jesus thinking, Jesus, you're on my side, and you're going to tell my sister to get up and do her share. That's what, he's think- that's what she thinks. Otherwise, she wouldn't come to Jesus and say it like that. 
And she's, but you see his compassion in the rebuke as he says, Martha, Martha. Just using her name twice there shows you the compassion, right? Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus understands that at some point people are going to need to eat. Jesus isn't unaware of the physical things that need to happen, but he's focused on being before doing. You're, you know, the doing needs to be an outflow of our being, but we have to take care of the being first because that's what's most important. And so she, he, he, basically his instruction really to, to Martha at the heart of it is, Join your sister. Sit down and just be. Like, learn from me. Hear from me. Be in my presence. Like, that's what Jesus wants from Martha, ultimately. She's, Mary has chosen the good portion, which basically means he's saying that she there has her priority right. And it's an instruction for Martha to do the same. Do you see the very realness of this? That Why is Martha do what, doing what she's doing? She's doing what she's doing for Jesus. But her doing for Jesus has become more important to her than being with Jesus. So in this story... Who are you right now? Are you Martha or are you Mary? And I'm not saying that only to the ladies in the room because there's a lot of guys who act like Martha as well. In fact, I would propose that many times in the church when it comes to worship, women are more open to that and want to go and are quicker to go there. While the guys thinking like what needs to get done. So there are a lot of guys who can be just as much Martha as Martha was Martha. So don't let yourself off the hook. You're like, well, this has nothing to do with me because I'm male. Please. Please. What, you want, you want the stories where, you know, the Good Samaritan and everything, to have nothing to do with women when you read that? Like there's no application for the women in the room? Come on. Come on, guys. You've got to identify with this and say to the guys, am I Mary or am I Martha? Am I more prone to be at the feet of Jesus or am I so busy trying to do things for Jesus that I just neglect all of that and therefore operate without power and then just getting upset about other people not doing their jobs? That's what that all stems from. So what do we do with it? If you're being married male or female, this time right here, this is Mary time. This is time where we come to the bread and the cup and we sit at the feet of Jesus and we learn from him. And then we have other times where it's time, some of us this afternoon after this, we'll go and we'll be Martha and get some work done in the name of Jesus. But right now, it's Mary time. So if, you're, if, you, if in this time you're thinking about stuff you've got to do later today, you're already making through your mental list and your task and all this stuff that you've got to do this week, and some of it you're going to do for Jesus, but you neglect this time at the feet of Jesus, you, you're missing it. Male or female, you're missing it. Because we meet here to Jesus and for Jesus and to give him the praise and the glory and honor that he's due. That's why we're here. Don't miss out while we're here. Why did Jesus go into Martha and Mary's house in the first place? To get a meal or to share his life with them? He went there to share his life with them. And Jesus is is here in our presence as we are gathered in his name for us to spend time with him. For us to spend time together as a family, 
at his feet. And if we miss out on that, then we're thinking about, man, I got something to share that's going to blow everybody's minds. Or, I want this or that. As opposed to, what gives Jesus the most glory and honor? What gives him the most praise? Can we just worship him? And that be enough. Laying aside our pride, laying aside the pride of the lawyer to look good in front of everybody else, laying aside the justification of ourselves and just being raw and open before Jesus and saying, this is who I am and I need your help. Because we sang earlier that, Jesus, I need you every hour. Do you believe that you need Jesus just as much today as you ever did? I hope you do. Because you need him today. I need him today. And there's still parts of me that aren't fully like Jesus that he's still got to root out and dig out and get rid of. And sometimes that's painful. And that hurts to once again be faced with the recognition of failure. But in order to have the heal, the wound cleansed and healed, there's going to have to be a little bit of turmoil within my own heart. And the same is true for you. And so that's where the scriptures instruct us to examine ourselves before we take the bread and the cup. Why? Because Jesus is here and he's available to heal and to help. That's why. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your goodness to us, God. We're thankful that what you desire from us this morning is to be at your feet, to be in your presence. Help us to engage fully with you, not to be in some other room or some other part of our week or doing some other task or occupied with those things that are next. But right here, right now, in your presence, Jesus, may we sit and be and hear from you. Thank you, Jesus. You made it all possible your death and your resurrection and we bow ourselves before you Jesus and we say we need you right here and right now Jesus we need you in your precious name